Major Lindsay in Africa presents Between the Legal Lines, a podcast focused on leading women lawyers who have pushed beyond the boundaries and found success. Welcome to Between the Legal Lines. My name is Andrea Bricka, and I am your host. This podcast is a series of monthly interviews where we explore how women who happen to also be both executives and lawyers navigate the boundaries often placed upon them due to their roles and their demographic. These women have found success despite those sometimes very narrowly drawn lines that govern what is acceptable and what is not. And each month we hear a new story from a different woman about what that is like. Joining me today is Nicole Stanton, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Harvest Health and Recreation, Inc. Nicole, welcome to Between the Legal Lines, and thank you for joining me today. Could you please tell us who you are, about your current role, and how you got there? Absolutely. So, Nicole Stanton, I'm currently the General Counsel and Corporate Secretary for Harvest Health and Recreation, Inc., And how I got there is I came from almost 20 years in private practice at a large law firm. And in late 2018, I was a partner there and decided that I was, had done everything that I really wanted to do in a large law firm setting and was looking for a new intellectual challenge. And so I applied for a job actually in the nonprofit sector and did not get that job. And about 24 hours after that job, you know, died, I guess that job opportunity died. A friend of mine called and asked me if I wanted to be general counsel of a company. And I said, well, it would depend on the company. And he introduced me to Harvest CEO, who is also a lawyer. And um, I did some research on the industry. Harvest is in the cannabis industry, which was completely foreign territory to me. And I was intrigued by it enough that I decided that I would agree to an interview. And the rest is kind of history for the last two years. I just celebrated my two year anniversary with Harvest just yesterday, in fact. Wow. Uh, Has any one person been particularly helpful in your career and helping you get to where you are? Yes. I mean, obviously there's more than one, but I would say if I had to pick just one, I actually had a mentor while I was at Quarles and Brady who, his name is Andy Sherwood. And he was a partner at the time in the litigation group, which is where I practiced. And Andy really made sure, first of all, that I learned how to practice law the right way. He had been the leader of the State Bar's Professionalism Committee for a couple of decades, I think, when I started practicing law. And so I really always felt like he taught me how to practice law in a way that that I was comfortable with, which was a very pragmatic way. It was a way that, of course, treated people with the utmost professionalism, even though you were adversaries. You know, he taught me never to really do things just for the sake of doing them to maybe make the other side's life more difficult. Um, We really were very results oriented for the clients. And and it was just I think he really shaped my career very early on and probably as important than, you know, teaching me how to be a professional was the fact that as anybody who's in a big law firm knows, it's really important to find those champions 
and Andy Sherwood was my champion. He made sure that I did depositions and that, that I attended hearings and presented on behalf of the client to the court. And he made sure that I had the opportunities on cases of significance. And then he also was my advocate in law firm compensation meetings and law firm advancement meetings to make sure that our compensation committee at the firm and our um, other committees responsible for advancing you through your career knew exactly what I was doing. And for that, you know, I'm just, I'm just hugely grateful to him. So speaking of law firm life, what challenge did you, what challenges did you face moving from a law firm partner to general counsel and how did you overcome them? Well, I think the biggest thing, at least that, you know, our CEO and I talk all the time about this because it's not just me in the in-house legal department at Harvest. I do supervise six other lawyers, which I think is a relatively large number for a, you know, a company of our size. But given the complexity of our industry and how fast we're moving, and I always say that we're running with scissors all the time because our industry industry really does move so quickly. I think the thing that that our CEO compliments me on all the time, and it's something that was challenging, but I think that I'm I'm learning more about it every day and how to do a better job at it is really being a business person in addition to being the legal advisor for the company. And so, you know, oftentimes I think lawyers want to, you know, they want to, especially when you're a young lawyer, you want to uncover every stone and, and, you know, you want to do things in a way that is a best practice, which oftentimes means doing things that may not be incredibly impactful to the outcome, but you almost have a checklist that you kind of run through. And I think that, you know, our CEO certainly appreciates, I think, the way that I have been able to adapt from being a lawyer to being a lawyer and a a business person, because I am considered, you know, a member of the management team at Harvest. And I do think that he respects my business judgment and oftentimes looks to me for advice on business matters in addition to legal matters. And that's something that, you know, certainly I didn't walk in the door at Harvest having that skill, but especially in this industry, because again, we don't oftentimes have the luxury of time. I think that, you know, having good judgment and being able to adapt quickly are things that are probably, you know, certainly skills that many lawyers might have, but I think that they're much more valued and and, and needed and necessary when you move into a business environment as as in-house counsel. I loved your running with scissors analogy. Um, (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about being the general counsel in the cannabis industry. What is it like being the GC in a newly emerging industry where legal issues must be very unique? They are very unique. And it's actually one of the things that I love most about my job in that, you know, I think there are some other industries, obviously, that certainly present legal challenges and, and, you know, highly regulated industries. Cannabis is a highly regulated industry. It's very similar, I would say, to to healthcare or pharmaceuticals or the alcohol and beverage industry is probably one that we get compared to a lot. And 
if you had told me five years ago that I would be the general counsel of one of the country's largest cannabis companies, I would have laughed in your face. It was certainly not an industry that I knew any, virtually anything about. It wasn't an industry that I had been following closely. And so the fact that this opportunity presented itself was, it, it completely took me by surprise. And I would say pleasantly, it, it has worked out and I have enjoyed the challenge of the industry. I mean, just, just a couple of things to share with your listeners about, I think, what, what makes our industry unique and what makes it particularly challenging is that you have to remember that across the United States, our industry is really regulated by a patchwork of regulations. So we have states, of course, in the country, there are now 19 states in the U.S. that have full legalization of cannabis. So those are one type of regulations. You then have states that are medical uh, approved states where it's a medical cannabis regime that we're operating under. And then of course you have states that, that have no, no cannabis at all. Those states are dwindling. I would say, I think it's around six, maybe six or so, but um, between a medical regime and a, you know, adult use state like Arizona or like California, the regulations are wildly different. Um, in, in various states, we're also regulated by different entities. And when I say that, I, I mean, some of the people, for example, in New Jersey, where we are uh, currently trying to get a license, the, the uh, New Jersey Department of Health there, a lot of the people that are working on their cannabis commission or their, their cannabis regulatory body came from the gaming industry. So they are approaching it with kind of that background and that mindset. In other states like Arizona, which is Harvest's home state and where I'm located, the Arizona Department of Health Services regulates us. So they come to it more from a health background than they do, you know, another regulated entity and, or industry. And so you can see that that's a, it's a different mindset that you even have in terms of the regulators that are regulating us. And then, of course, you have this state-by-state -state patchwork of different regulations. Whether or not you're allowed to do something in one state, even though it's a, a adult use state, maybe different than another state that has adult use. So it really is a wild patchwork. And to say that it changes rapidly would be an understatement. Things change, of course, day to day. States are always, you know, right now moving from medical to legalization. That's happening much more quickly now. Um, Arizona, of course, was a voter initiated legalization campaign, which passed in November of 2020 by the voters of Arizona and the Arizona Department of Health Services by January 22nd, 2021, had implemented the entire program for adult use, which was the fastest in the country. So we had to, Harvest had to, between November and January, prepare all of our employees, all of our stores, all of our POS systems for adult use. And in Arizona, just to you know, drill down a little bit more, what that means is that you have two types of customers still in Arizona. You have 
uh, adult use customers who pay a 16% tax and there are certain products only available to them. Um, and then you have medical customers who don't pay a 16% tax and there are other products that are exclusively available to them. And so um, it's a different customer. It's an entirely different process. It's an entirely different regulatory structure. So Harvest had to move quickly in those three months and it was definitely a company-wide effort to make that happen. But you know that could happen in another state where we operate. There are other states right now looking at legalization and if that happens, we just have to be incredibly nimble because things do change all the time. So long-winded answer to your question, but um, I wanted to give you a little flavor about that. The other thing, if I can just add one more thing, is that we also are doing multiple types of businesses within one company. So we at Harvest, we not only cultivate cannabis, so that's really an agricultural business. Um, we do that function. We then process the cannabis, the agricultural component into products. So we have a manufacturing and processing component to our business. And then those products that we make are then sold in our retail stores. So we're also a retail business as well. So you have all of these different business lines within our company. Not all cannabis companies are that way, but certainly a company like Harvest is. So that's another layer of complexity to add on to that. It does sound challenging. Wow, that, that, that there's a lot of moving parts. Um, and, <laughs> and you mentioned being a business person also. So in that environment, could you talk about the intersection you see between your role as general counsel and other executive team members like the CFO, the CHRO? Where do those relationships intersect and what do you think is the most effective approach to that interaction? So at Harvest, I mean, we, we have a very, you know, pretty thinly staffed management team. And so I interact with the CFO daily, for example. Um, Harvest is a publicly traded company. We're also, we're publicly traded in Canada on the Canadian Stock Exchange, but we're also registered in the United States with the SEC. We are not traded on the New York Stock Exchange at this point, but because we're not allowed to be. But um, so we do have a lot of securities issues. So you can see how my interaction with the CFO um, happens because, you know, a lot of those filings are very numbers and financial financially driven. Um, so there's a lot of interaction between me and the CFO and we we have an open line of communication. We have a standing meeting every week, but we have an, an ongoing dialogue as things are coming up. I mean, Harvest is very much in the startup phase still as a company. And so, you know, again, using my running with scissors analogy, um, that type, we, we can't effectively get things done without a, you know, an open dialogue. I mean, we have conversations early in the morning, we have conversations late at night. And I think just having a, a really, you know, a relationship kind of built on trust and an understanding that we are all in this 100%. And, you know, there's really no time of day or night that I can't reach out to the CFO or the CEO, or uh, the person who helps handle our operations 
or anybody in the HR department. I think at least right now in Harvest's maturity as a company, there's really not a lot of a lot of boundaries with regard to you know structure and and setup of these these interactions between the various different part departments. It's a very fluid, free flowing situation because we don't really have the luxury of setting up a lot of barriers to interaction between the various departments. I mean, we, we, as I said, we interact daily, sometimes hourly. Well, speaking of hourly interactions and kind of switching gears slightly, what have you and maybe your other executive team members learned about leadership um, from the COVID crisis we just experienced? Yeah, well, I mean, for us, as I mentioned, because we have a retail component, um, we are customer facing. And so like other retailers, COVID was an extremely uh, stressful time for us. Um, we also, in, in many of the states that we operate, in fact, I can't think of one that we weren't, we were considered an essential business because most of the jurisdictions that we operate in still have a medical cannabis component to them. And so for, for our customers, getting the products that they needed was really no different for, you know, for other people than having the, your local Walgreens open. So we were treated in the same category as pharmacies and, and healthcare institutions in, in terms of being an essential business. So I, I would say the things I learned about leadership from the COVID crisis one was, you know, just the dedication and speed of the team that we were able to pull together, sort of this multidisciplinary team within the company, when I think we realized that this was not going to be a two-week, you know, event, that this was going to be a long-term event, and just having to build those processes to address when an employee tested positive or was exposed to COVID and and doing that in a way that kept our business operating. Um, the industry, I think, and, and specifically Harvest, we actually did very well economically during the pandemic. I'm not sure if it was all the parents having to stay home homeschooling their children, <laughs> but um, our revenues did increase uh, many months during the pandemic because um, you know people were still able to access our products and and we were able to provide curbside service and and things like that. But the thing that I would say that I learned personally as a leader from the COVID crisis is that before the pandemic, especially when I was you know at the law firm that I previously was at, where I managed the firm for five years, I was very skeptical of remote work. And you know, I, I was like, oh yeah, you're working at home, sure thing, because I had never done it. And um, I, so of course I was very skeptical of it, that could you really be productive and are you really doing work and when no one's watching you? And of course the pandemic forced everyone to work at home. And I watched the team that I supervise and their productivity level. And then, you know, obviously observed my own productivity level and, and sort of work environment while working at home. And I'm a big fan now. In fact, I would, I would take a pay cut <laughs> to continue to work remotely because I am more productive. I think that our, our you know, management of the company has not seen any slippage with regard to the work that's getting done by the legal department. 
And so I do think, and I'm optimistic that that will continue to be a, a long-term opportunity for people to, to work at home because I can see the benefits of it. I've experienced now the benefits of it. And so for me as a leader, it was eye-opening to see the effectiveness of, of remote working because had this not happened, I probably would have continued to be a skeptic, but I'm a true believer now that uh, you can be very productive working remotely. What, if anything, do you wish you were freer to say or do at work? And if, if there are things that you considered, why can't you? Wow. Um, you know, that's a tough question for me. I, I, because I really, I really do speak my mind. I, I think I have that luxury. I had it while I was at a, a law firm. I never really felt stifled in terms of, of what I was able to say. I, you know, I did speak out on diversity issues and the need for more diversity at, at the firm. I would say at Harvest, the things that I'm, I, I would say I'm not really free to speak about are things that I, I don't feel comfortable speaking about because I'm not an expert in those things. Like I would never challenge another department leader about the way they're, they're running their department unless they're running afoul of some sort of regulatory or legal uh, piece of, of what it is that they're doing. But Harvest is a pretty, we just had a two-day leadership summit the last two days. And so maybe I'm feeling extremely optimistic about my colleagues, but um, it really is a place where we don't really have, again, we don't have the luxury of not having courageous conversations with one another and you know sometimes those are difficult conversations i've seen them happen but i feel like this industry and this company sort of brings together people who everybody's kind of in it for a different motivation but we're all rowing the boat in the same direction and so there's really not things that i don't feel free to say for example within probably a month it may have even been during my interview i know that it was a short time after um, I started talking to Harvest. I told our CEO, I was like, hey, you don't have any women on the board of Harvest. That It was all men at the time that I was recruited. And so, you know, I felt pretty comfortable bringing that up right out of the gates because that's a value of mine. I will, you know, constantly perpetuate that wherever I can go. And so, you know, and, and thankfully, I he was comfortable with that. And I may not have been felt free to say that if I didn't kind of assess that he was open to learning about my ideas about diversity and, and inclusion. And so, you know, I, again, like I just have not felt stifled to say anything. I, I would feel like I'm doing a disservice to the company if I didn't say things that, you know, that I felt needed to be said. We're trying to build, you know, we're trying to build a, a company here. So you really do have to have some very candid conversations. Fair enough. Um, expanding on that a little bit, what's been stronger? Any restraints you've placed on yourself during your career or restrictions placed upon you by other people? I would say that um, probably restrictions placed, placed on myself. I mean, I... I really regret, you know, sort of looking at things in hindsight and, and I'm dating myself here, but I have been practicing law now for over 20 years. 
And I look back now at some of the things that I have had the opportunity to do at Harvest out of necessity, because again, you know, we're doing a lot of things in a lot of different legal areas. Most recently, you know, I'm a litigator. I was a litigator for the entire time I was in private practice. And within the last six months, Harvest entered into a, an arrangement agreement to be acquired by another cannabis company. And I, of course, as the general counsel of Harvest, really was responsible for overseeing the outside lawyers and the inside lawyers at Harvest who were uh, representing us on that transaction. And so I'm certainly not an M&A lawyer, but I loved working on that. And so I would say that in terms of what's been stronger for me are the restrictions that I've placed on myself as a practicing lawyer to kind of stay in my lane, of course, while I was in private practice, because you're not really allowed when you're at a large law firm to dabble in different things. You are encouraged to become a specialist in a, you know, hopefully a niche area if you're lucky. And so the ability to work on so many different things at Harvest is one of the things that I love. And and as we worked through this arrangement agreement and the announcement of the acquisition of Harvest by TrueLeave, um, it was very gratifying to me. It was exhausting. I worked 20 hours on Mother's Day, the day before we announced the agreement, but I wouldn't have changed it for anything because that I think is where you get maximum professional growth is when you're doing things that, that do provide a little bit of discomfort to you and I think that for so many years at a large law firm, I was restricted in that regard because again, it's just, and, and, and not, I'm not being critical of it. I, I think they do it out of necessity, of course, because they, they want people to be experts in certain areas, but it really doesn't allow you the latitude to even experience um, other areas really of, of a legal practice when you're at a large law firm. So that's what I love about being in house every day is, is being able to kind of get rid of those shackles and, and I get to work on really whatever it is that I want to work on in terms of the legal challenges facing Harvest and, you know, work with terrific outside counsel doing that and, and work with the six members of my team who are also fantastic. So, you know, I think it is a self-imposed restraint about where I, where I chose to practice law and what I chose to do for many years. So data does continue to show that there is a gender pay gap for most legal roles, particularly the general counsel role. Do you have any thoughts on how we can close that gap going forward and even how we get more women into the general counsel seat? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the advice, and I don't recall where I read it, but I, I remember once reading something about women, if they don't have, if women don't have all 20 of the qualifications that a job description is looking for, they, you know, they say, oh, I'm not going to apply for that. And I think one of the best things that I took from reading that was the recommendation that if you're a woman and, and you feel like you would like to do that job and you think you would bring something of value to it, that you should apply. What's the worst thing that happens? You get told no. 
um, you're no worse off than you were if you had not applied at all. And so I do think, and, and I think my experience is a perfect example of this. When I decided in late 2018 that I wanted to leave a large law firm, I applied in the nonprofit sector to be a CEO, uh, an executive director type level position of a nonprofit here in Phoenix. I don't have nonprofit experience, but I do. I did believe that I had a skill set that I could bring value to that organization. And so I said, I'm just going to apply. This is a job I think that would be well suited for my skills. It's something that I want to do. So I'm just going to apply. I ended up making it to the final two candidates. They ended up choosing someone who did have experience in that organization. And so I was okay with that. But I think, again, going back to your last question, I think many times women do hold themselves back because unlike our male counterparts, who you know may fit one criteria on the on the ten item list and they apply anyway. Women tend to you know I think the research shows that that they do tend to hold themselves back because they don't apply unless they meet all the criteria. So I've just been one of those people that my mindset has been if that's something that I want to do, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. And again, the worst thing that happens is that someone says no. The, the other thing that I would say, Andrea, is that one thing that has been a huge, huge help to me is there's an, a group called the Women General Counsel Network, and it's, it's exactly what, what, it, what its name descri is describing, which is it's a group of, of women general counsels, and we have sort of like a listserv of, through email where women GCs can ask questions of other GCs you know, hey, do you have a template for this? Um, do you, who would you recommend for immigration counsel? Um, any type of legal question, these, this group of women general counsel from across the country, we each support each other. We provide recommendations to one another. We share forms, particularly during the COVID crisis when so many of us were scrambling to interpret regulations that were changing sometimes multiple times per day. Um, having that group of women has just been invaluable. And so I think, you know, closing that gap comes by not just getting women in those seats, but it's what I've said a long time about law firms. It's not just getting women in those seats. It's also keeping them in those seats. And I think one way of doing that, that is to provide this supportive, connective tissue for women general counsels and this women general counsel network has just, it's been really helpful to me as a new GC and certainly somebody that, you know, I didn't have a corporate background. Again, I'm, I'm a former litigator. And so it's been hugely helpful to have, have that support group. Well, Nicole, in parting, what final advice would you offer to other ambitious women about workplace behavior and their careers? So it's, you know, it's the same advice I would give to people at a law firm as I would give to people who want to be in-house. I mean, I think that you, of course, never get a second chance to make that first impression. And when I was at a large law firm, I mean, I, I definitely tried to hit the ground running and create the reputation for someone who was always willing to step in 
do the things that nobody else wanted to do. And um, as a leader of a legal department, I certainly always try to walk the walk and, and don't ask the people on my team to do things that I'm not doing myself. And so I do think it is really that dedication and that commitment and that willingness, as I just said, to do things that nobody else wants to do. I think one of the reasons why I, I had the ability to even put my hat in the ring for a, a GC position at Harvest was that while I was at my former law firm, I was given the, the opportunity to work on loss prevention matters, ethics matters, malpractice claims for the firm. And I did end up becoming the assistant general counsel of the firm. And I really believe that number one, that set me up within the law firm to be considered for a law firm management role at, you know, at a certain point in my career because the, the management of the firm had learned that I could handle those very sensitive matters, which again, malpractice claims, ethics problems of the lawyers at the firm, that I could handle those with discretion and that I could handle them in a way that you know was effective for the firm. And so I think that that opened the door to be considered for a management role within the firm. And then I do think that of course, when you're working at a law firm, um, it's very, you know, to go in house, I think it was great for me to have the ability to say, yeah, I was the assistant GC for the law firm that I am coming from. And that allowed me to have that on my resume and, and have that experience that I, they may not have had otherwise. And the reason that I was given that opportunity was because I was willing to do things that nobody else wanted to do. Nobody else wanted to be the person who had to answer the calls about conflicts of interest. Nobody wanted to be the person who um, had to deal with those thorny ethics issues. And so it was, you know, it was a fairly thankless job, but I didn't get paid extra to do it while I was at the law firm. And I do think that there were times when I would be involved with a firm malpractice case or an ethics issue, and you can't delegate that stuff to somebody else. And so I do think it hurt my billable hours. I do think that, you know, I didn't get paid as much as I probably could have during those years because I was working on non-billable matters for the firm. But I do think that it was one of the stepping stones to open the door for me to have the opportunity to work in-house. And so again, taking on those things that nobody else wants to take on is advice that I would, you know, that I would always recommend to people because I have many times found great, great opportunities come out of those things that, you know, where you kind of least expect it. Nicole, thank you so much. This has been Between the Legal Lines, where you have just heard from Nicole Stanton, General Counsel at Harvest Health and Recreation, Inc. I am Andrea Bricka from Major Lindsay in Africa. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for a new story from another woman who is successfully operating between the legal lines. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact me at abricka at mlaglobal.com. Thank you for listening. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.